Hi everyone and welcome to Cooking Goals. You're listening to The Cooks and here we talk to motivated people who are actually doing something, how they got to where they are and their goals for the future. The aim of this podcast is to inspire people to create goals for themselves, to push towards and surpass them. Whether it be small goals like running a four minute kilometre or big goals like owning a home, I want this space to be somewhere people can come for inspiration, to listen in on a great conversation, hopefully learn something and in the process create goals for the future. Today's episode of the podcast is sponsored by The Daily Grind, a venture which I have started myself where I collect and redistribute used coffee grounds to the community. If you're interested in this venture, please get in contact with me via the link in the description of this episode. Today we talk to Richard Heismans, speaker, author and mentor who is passionate about building outstanding careers for PhD students after graduation. How are you Richard? Great, thanks Nathan. How are you going? Yeah, good. A bit hotter today. I know you're down you're down south in Melbourne, aren't you? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. so I'm up in Queensland, so um but I've heard that it's been getting a little bit warmer down there. Um Yeah. Now I guess people can go outside, which is good. I definitely since the for those playing along at home, COVID COVID lockdown this time, you know, December twenty twenty, COVID lockdown just ending for Victoria. Um thirty five days in a row I think today we hit of zero cases and um, zero people in hospital, which is really cool. And thankfully in Victoria, no deaths from COVID in the recent past either. So yeah, coming out of the other side of this good, and as we hear as well, that in the UK, they're starting vaccinations shortly and you know maybe in the US as well. And But I think in Australia, they're talking about a timeline of March, 2021. So still a bit of pain for us in terms of social distancing, mask wearing, all of that. But yeah, doing okay nonetheless. Yeah, it's quite a different experience. I've had to quite quite be, I guess, a little bit more of aware of the news and things down there, cause, as in doing things remotely from Monash. But um, it's definitely been a big difference up here in Queensland where we haven't had that, I guess, this, the strictness of being inside for the early... I think one of my supervisors was home because she lives out a couple of hours out of Melbourne was at home for like a hundred days or, or more. And I was yeah. like, that's, that's yeah. quite extreme. Yeah. Metro Melbourne was big long lockdown for a long time. It was, um, yeah, there's been lots of talk on the radio. I listened to ABC radio, lots of talk on the radio about, um, you know, the mental health impact of that. And I've definitely felt that, you know, that's, I think if you're, you know, I don't know, your audience is probably PhD students. You know, if you're a student and you found it tough, you're, you're not alone, um, you know, being in lockdown, it, whether it's in Victoria or some other part of Australia or even some other part of the world, it, it's not been easy. So um, just acknowledge that and be kind to yourself, I think. That's probably one of the things that I've tried to do is, be kind to myself if you know if it feels like a tough day at work or doing your thesis or whatever it's okay to take a day off you can't be on the whole time so yeah and even i've heard a few people say you know doing a thesis or a phd is quite isolating in itself if you're not in a um i guess like a cohort or a little community or a working office so it's good to be able to see that people are i guess more aware of their mental health and how you know being inside and doing just work all day on a screen is um it's it's okay that like you said have a have a, a relax so it's good yeah definitely. especially you need to find things that 
that keep that um i guess recharge you if that makes sense so you know obviously sleep is one thing that can recharge people but what else you know you talked about going on holiday um people might surf people might play sport people might play or listen to music or read but find out what you know recharges your batteries and make sure that you schedule some of that stuff into your diary yeah awesome well we might get started richard um, so now, the way I like to start my podcast is I always like to tell the listeners at the start, I guess, how, how I came into uh, in contact or, or met someone. So uh, we haven't physically met in person, but it, so about a couple of weeks ago, I think uh, I went to one of Richard's workshops and it was how to use uh, Microsoft Word to write, write your thesis. It was really good, action-packed, just nice and in and out quick. Um, and I really liked it at the, at, at the end of each question. You're like, is everyone okay with that? Um, and you get the Zoom silence and you just move on. So... Uh, but no, it was it was really good and super helpful, and I've been playing around with it um, a lot lately, which has been good. You know, just throwing on the auto save and things. So I saw um, for those I'm, I'm not filming today's episode. I, I don't do uh, video, but Richard's uh, sitting in I get I would say his office or at, at the moment before he he's moving on to a, a bigger home. But he's got a banner and it's uh, it's got his initials on it, and I, that quite intrigued me. So I had a bit of a Google of DRH and uh, seeing what was out there and came across Richard's website and I thought this is going to be, you know, I'd love to have Richard on and have a discussion. So this, this is where we are today. Good on you. Good on you for reaching out. So I guess um, for those that are too scared to reach out to me or to Nathan or to anyone else, if you don't ask, you won't get. So definitely write that email, send that tweet, um, tag them on Insta, whatever it is that is where you're comfortable, try and connect with your mentors or the people that you admire. It's a really easy way of progressing your career. Yeah. Yeah, it's really something that I've, um, I would say to people that I'm quite well, I'm quite well at. Like I, um, obviously, you know, example A, reaching out to you and having a good response and getting on today, but that's how I got my PhD is I reached out to the supervisor after a conference and said, hey, this is really cool. Can I get on board? And this is where I am now. So, it is. It's quite a magical tool. The way you can, I guess, get get into people's pockets. You know, these days with a, a message or, or a, an email. So, compared to you know, having to climb, you know, a hundred floors in an elevator to talk to the CEO. You know, it's a bit different. So, yeah, definitely. I would say um, so. Some stuff that I know from both my experience and um, what others tell me. One, we know that seventy percent of all jobs are filled through networking rather than through a formal ad. So there might be an ad, but the role itself ends up getting filled through a network and that's academic and non-academic jobs. Um, And then in terms of social media, I've interviewed CEOs, I've interviewed academics and the thread for all of them is exactly the same thing. My email response time is crap, but my social media response time is awesome so basically like so for academics tag them on twitter dm them on twitter for industry industry people connect with them on linkedin and send them a message via linkedin Um, and all of those things are free you don't need the professional linkedin tool or anything like that to send messages you just need to be connected and even even if they you know don't respond you haven't lost anything by by not getting a response and also I totally agree and even you know I'm sure you've or people have also not responded to things but they still seen it and they go okay well you're in the back of their head you know like they'll something that might pop up one day and they go oh someone messaged me about that or you know don't always uh, we're, we're so on you know on our phones and stuff all the time people expect the message you know directly in return but you know 
as Richard said, you know, email response times are really poor in a lot of for a lot of people, um, and that's just you see it and you're like, oh, I'll do it. You know, I've got things to do, or they they don't check their emails. So, um, and I guess it's probably not as on, it's not as appealing as a, a Twitter feed or anything as well. Yeah. So, I, I shouldn't, I probably shouldn't share this, but I will. So I've got some auto emails that go out um, to people, and so there's an automatic thread, and. Um, most people respond at about the fourth or fifth automatic email and then they come across as all apologetic. And it's really good from my perspective because I get to send reminder emails in a time frame and in a way that's, that feels authentic to me. But then they go, oh, wow, Richard sent me four emails. He's really keen and, you know, oh, better respond to him. It works really well. So just by you know, going back to that idea that we don't respond. Another thing Again, I, an academic once said to me, I know that, it, that something isn't important if I don't get at least two emails about it. So expect that your first one will be ignored because that's a way of triaging importance. Um, yeah, so just, oh, and finally, um, if you can with that connection, um, think about how that person is and how you might connect. So there's this guy on Instagram called um, Whiteboard Lessons. In real life, he's name is Craig Harper. Check him out. He's got some really good stuff around um, motivation. Uh, and I wanted to connect with him. So I, he swears, if you listen to his podcast, if you see his posts, um, he swears a lot. Um, and he has a, so I wrote an email that was just full of swear words. And, and he said the only reason he replied was because he had an email from Dr. Richard Heisman's and in the juxtaposition of that with all these swear words, he's like, I've got to at least apply to this guy and see what he has to say. So yeah, and now Craig and I catch up quite frequently, actually. I helped him or not sure that I convinced him. I think he had the idea himself, but helped him get into a PhD program and now he's doing a PhD and you know we have chats about you know his motivational stuff, his PhD stuff, my work, his work, yeah, it's cool. So. Definitely think about how you can connect in a way that might, you know, surprise and delight your um, your potential um, collaborator or networker. Yeah, I love stories like that. It's so it's so fascinating, and it's so like you can. I find it, you know, um, I'm turning into more of a, you know, I'm 24 now. I'm kind of not really around school or university people a lot. Um, it, it's harder to make friends and connect people. So it's a obviously it's a good way. I guess you know work first professionalism first but you can also make friends this way and and it's it's a great way to not just expand your network but you know expand the people in your life so it's, mm. it's awesome to see that that you still you know catch up with him and you know that's another success story that we'll I'm sure we'll go we'll talk about more today so yeah now the best way to get the gears moving Richard is I think especially for conversations where I'm, I'm not super familiar with the person is just you know, just go all out so tell us about yourself um, I guess the way I like to do it is like the five W's and the how. So, you know, who, what, when, where, why, how, in terms of your work and yourself, um, and the, I guess the DRH brand. Mm-hmm. Sure. So uh, I started out, well, I guess, my academic life as a PhD student and like yourself at Monash. I did, I was at Monash in terms of all of my education, I was at Monash the longest. So I spent um, four, three years there as an undergrad, one year as an honor student, and then a further three and a half or four years as a PhD student. And then I worked at Monash for a further four years after that. So high school and primary school, no, they were short in comparison to my time at Monash. And I actually still haven't left. Uh, I started playing soccer at Monash when I was in first year. 
which was for those playing at home, uh, 1997 was my first year of uni. Um, and I haven't stopped, I basically haven't stopped playing soccer there since. There's probably been one or two years that I missed out for various reasons. Um, but uh, yeah, basically playing continually ever since. So that's sort of a bit about my background to this point. In my PhD, that's when I realized that I didn't want an academic career. I, um, I saw, I worked in a biomedical science lab uh, and in that lab, I saw people working really hard and getting not outstanding results. I saw people working not so hard and getting outstanding results. And then there were people that, you know, in between as well. And so there was a disconnect for me between the efforts and the reward. And I, I didn't want to have um, that disconnect in whatever I chose to do as, uh, for, for a living. And so then I started looking for other things. So I just networked. I spoke to my supervisor. That was a bit of a tough conversation to tell someone that probably picked me um, or picked every student. And I think this is true for most supervisors. You know, you pick students that you think you'd like to have as ultimately staff in your research group. Um, and to hear that they don't want to be in your research group or in academia, that's a hard thing for a supervisor to hear so if you're having that conversation with your supervisor understand their side of the story as well um but i had that difficult chat with them uh and then you know she was like cool you know i understand your decision here's how i can help and so she helped by letting me network with people who weren't academic so we, we were a, a relatively fortunate group lab department we had visitors that were academics as well as non-academic visitors um, including politicians or um, other scientists but in industry and so i got to meet most of those people when they came through um, and then obviously you have a lot of if you're in biomedical science you have a lot of sales reps come to the lab selling um you know whatever it is reagents that you might use every day or equipment that you use every day and so i would chat to them about their job and their roles and i thought of a few different things that i wanted to do one of them was um to head out and become a some kind of sales rep myself i had an interview with a company they asked some questions that I thought, oh, wow, that's an interesting question. I don't know that the ethics of that sits well with me. So I ruled out sales rep um, as a job and then began looking for other things. And I ended up getting a job at Monash, like I said before, working on strategy, which was probably the best place to cut my teeth I could have hoped for, to be honest. I worked with researchers, but I didn't have to do research. I worked with teachers, but I didn't have to teach. I worked with administrators, but I didn't have to do the administration of teaching or research. It was it was a really cool role to have. I had a really great mentor in that role. Um, her name was Donna Cohen, she, and she's still around. If you Google Donna Cohen, you'll, you should see her. We did some great work together in that unit, which was called the Strategic Projects Development Unit. And then um, from there, the unit kind of got restructured, the faculty that we were in got restructured, and we both decided that we wanted to do something else. And we'd seen in that unit people, you know, like doing what I do now, but doing it for good money. We'd see the quality of their work, and we were like, you know what, we like the invoices, we can achieve the quality, let's give this thing a crack. So both of us, at around the same time, about six months apart, set up our own businesses. Um, and then so that focused early on in lots of planning and strategy and research grant writing for at the university level. Um, but as time's gone by, I've 
got more and more interested in helping people with careers. So grant writing is still about career development. It's still about what to do next, but it's now bigger than that for me. It's in, it's including PhD students and helping them understand what to do next. It's including early career researchers and helping them transition from academia to something else. It's including industry people like the guy that I mentioned before, Craig, and helping them work out how can they better engage with university in order to um, maybe get access to some of the outstanding thinking that takes place in universities. Um, I think that answers everything. Who, what, when, when I already said 97 was when I started. Um, my undergrad um, PhD finished in 2004 and I started my own business in 2008 and I've been doing basically that since 2008. All that whole time has been work from home, that whole time has been work from essentially southeast Melbourne um, and that's still going to be the case when we move to a new place. Um, yeah, I think I think that's all of the the who, what, when, where, and why. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah, I think that's how I learned to tell a story in year two or something, and it's really stuck with me. So, no, <laughs> it's like it's quick and easy. No, that that's amazing. And so, it's I guess you know coming to your supervisor and saying, hey, I don't want to do basically, I don't want to do your job um, yeah. in the future. That's a hard thing, like you said, for them to hear as well as when I speak to people now. If I speak to say someone, I went to a, a thing last time. There was like all these people I had never met, and they said, "Oh, well, what do you get after you get your PhD?" I'm like, "Oh, well, I'll become a doctor, but not a real doctor, and I guess I can research and teach." And they were like, "Oh, that's pretty cool." Um, and I've been speaking to, I've been going to lots of things similar to yours about you know career development and um, choices after because they, they say you know you should probably start thinking about it while you're in it if you mm. know because it will go really quick. You know, like nine months for me has already flown by. Um, it's interesting to, to I've been to a few of these and people you know it's a good like 30, 70 whereas 70% are saying they want to get out you know um, so it's, in, it's interesting that you you know you're, it's good to see that you're self-aware to know that as well because um, and I was speaking to my supervisor yesterday about it and she was saying you know we publish research for other researchers to read um, and there's no like you know the, the general public it might be guidelines for their nutrition intake but they're not going to read it you know it needs to be put into like a um, it's really like you said effort for reward like you do like say for one paper as a PhD student you do a year's worth of research um, and then but you got to dumb it all down to one infographic for the general public and that's like hang on, like I should have just done that in the first place you know so um, it, it's really interesting it's an interesting I guess transition um, from from knowing like being in a PhD myself and you, you, you doing one um, to, to see what happens in that I guess environment and what's expected of you um, and then obviously with the you know funding and how many publications you have and the expectations of that role. So um, and it's, it look it appears that you know you love what you're doing and it's really cool that you got I guess you had that experience in this in the I guess the SDPS or something where it was strategy SDP or RPDU the, or the Strategic Projects Development Unit SPDU yeah Spadu Spadu yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and and then you you know use those skills to then you know do what um, uh, you're doing now and it appears that you're really enjoying it, which is great so yeah um and so so what was so what was your biomedical research project uh so i was in the faculty of medicine nursing and health sciences at monash in the department of biochemistry and molecular biology and i looked at cell signaling pathways and particularly proteins or um kinases and phosphatases involved in how 
external signals were communicated into internal activity and like everything in um, biomedicine it's all related to the major diseases of cancer or diabetes or both and ours was related to you know cancer and diabetes um, yeah it was uh, we were looking at um, oh shivers I got a um, it was a phosphatase, which means it took took phosphates off inositol rings, and then we looked at how that that activity was regulated in the presence of another protein. Um, and it was it was really cool work. And I still, when I go back and look at my thesis and show other people, I'm still excited by that. And certainly, like I said, I didn't really want to become an academic for the reward for effort side of things. Um, and I felt at the time I didn't want to get on the grant treadmill. Um, funnily enough, though, I think that my source of income now is far, far, far more um, precarious. You know, I'd love the idea of writing a grant, writing 10 grants, getting one funded and only having to do that once every three years. Whereas now, you know, I've got to pitch myself to every individual that I sell to contracts. You know, the longest program that I run goes for 12 months. Um, most most engagements that I have with individuals go for 12 weeks. Um, most engagements that I have with a university go for um, one month. So the, the time frame is so much shorter than the, than a grant timeline. So yeah, I, I'd prob so I think what I would say about that for those people out there thinking, oh, what do I want to do? Sometimes what you want to do will allow you to. Um, I guess, put up with things that you didn't think you could. So, you know, the grant treadmill was something that I didn't think that I wanted, but it turns out actually that insecurity of funding was not a big of an issue if I really loved what I was doing. So I think that was a big thing. Um, yeah, and so in, in my PhD, all the stuff that I learned was um, you know, in terms of techniques, it was all biomedical science techniques, as well as communication skills, presentation skills, writing. We didn't do a lot of translation in, in our lab, and certainly I wasn't responsible for it when it did happen. Um, and I think that translation and, and engagement has become something that's happened a lot more recently, as community has said, you know, when government spends money on research, what do we get out of it? You know, like you said, research papers are generally written for other scientists, not for um, the general public or not for the end user. So then, you know, how do we make that science accessible? How do we make the research accessible to the end user? And I think those are some of the bigger questions that we're now grappling with as a society. And if you want other funding sources, then doing that is um, essential. Yeah, that industry collaboration, I think it's come out quite prominent in a lot of the thing. I guess, workshops I've been going to. They're like, well, you don't have to just go to government for funding. You know, there's companies who want to have out, outputs and impacts in the community and they, they you know, have deep pockets. And if you've got a facility uh, and you've got a question that they, they're keen to help answer, um, you know, like, like we said before, don't be afraid to just ask. And mm. you could, could, could see yourself with the three three to five year project grant and you're laughing so yeah um yeah exactly and so so you so i would say you were one of these but you know two out of three phd students you know don't have a career path in mind um uh when when they're leaving or during their phd and and so i'd like to kind of explore that like i guess are they still valuable having a phd do you think like 
I think it, you need to work out why it is you want to do one personally. Um, so I, I did my PhD because it was the next thing to do and it was probably easier than finding a job. And that's no joke. So um, not because I'm particularly smart, perhaps because I'm stubborn or stupid. Maybe that's the reason why it was easier. But, you know, after finishing my degree, the, you know, you have all, if you've been through that process, there are a bunch of seminars at the end of your final year where the university staff pitch to you the idea of doing further study. And so if you get okay marks, the getting into honours is not that difficult, which is what happened for me. Um, and I was lucky enough to get offered several honours places. Um, and I, you know, I, I got to choose, but not everyone's that lucky, but I, I was. Uh, and then from honours to PhD, it was almost exactly the same thing. Honours is kind of like um, a, an internship the, where the research group gets to work out whether they like you as a student and you get to work out whether you like them as collaborators and um, supervisors. And then the PhD is kind of like the job after the, after the, um, the apprenticeship or the job, up, sorry, the job after the internship. And so, again, the same thing, you know, you get research group heads coming to you and saying, yeah, you know, it'll be easy for you to get a PhD, no problem, put in the application, I'm pretty sure it'll be funded. And, and that's what happened. Whereas if you went for a job, no matter when you go for a job, most people are putting in about 10 applications to get two or three interviews to get one job. And I didn't have to do that at all with my PhD. And, and at the time, a stipend was quite lucrative. The amount that was tax-free was quite large compared to the amount that was, you know, the tax-free threshold for a full-time worker. Um, so, yeah, all of that was how I ended up in a PhD. And I didn't really think about what I was, what I would do after. I spoke to a few drug reps and they said, yeah, look, people with PhDs are now increasingly applying for various rep roles. So having a PhD will put you probably slightly ahead of the pack, but there are other people that are going to be doing that. Um, so I thought, all right, cool. It won't be a waste in that regard. I did, hadn't ruled out academia at that point. So uh, I thought, okay, I'll, you know, I'll, you definitely need a PhD if you want to be in academia. So if you know that you want to be an academic, don't look at the stats about, you know, the number of people that do PhDs and don't become academics, go do a PhD and work out whether that's still something that you want to do. But that's probably the one reason, that's probably one of the few reasons where you would, my advice would be definitely go and do a PhD. Um, but there are other reasons, other ways to find out what it's like to be an academic. Like I said, honors, masters, working in a, in a research group as a research assistant, you don't need to have a PhD to do that. And that could give you a pretty good understanding of what, academic life will be like um and then if you if you like the idea of doing research then doing a phd is probably not a bad thing to do either um and if you've if you're later on in your career or life and you've you know you worked for a little while you know you could be 30 or 40 or even 50 at, or older in fact you might have questions that you're not sure what the answer is and it doesn't seem that the answer is out there at all then doing a PhD to help answer those questions is probably a good reason to do a PhD as well. But I would not be saying to people in general, do a PhD just in case if, um, if I saw, if I visited myself, I don't know that I would give my myself the advice of going and doing a PhD, 
but that's not to say that my PhD hasn't been useful. Like I wouldn't be doing the work that I'm doing if I didn't have my PhD. I wouldn't have got the job at Monash University if I didn't have a PhD. Um, so if you want to work in a university, except as an administrator, so even if you want to work as a member of professional staff, a lot of those staff have PhDs as well. So if you again, if you want to do that kind of work, get a PhD as well. Yeah, it's a very, like you said, it comes in useful. It's a useful tool to have. You know, on the re- I spoke to some lady who I've only met twice, and so I'm doing a PhD, and she goes, "Oh, that's cool. It's good on the resume." You know, I'm like, well, it's not just about the letters at the end of my name or before my <laughs> name, you know, like it's about, yeah. you know, the, the, about the topic and the people you're with, like you said, do you enjoy the work, do you enjoy the, the team? Um, mm-hmm. I, I really relate to what you said there because like I did my honours and um, I'm, then I, I didn't feel any more employable to other dietitians because I was like, there's like, there's like 20 of us who did honours and, you know, I, I wasn't getting jobs flung at me. Um, yeah. <laughs> but, but then when I went for my PhD interview, I got it on top of people who had like 20 years experience as a dietitian, but they hadn't done their honours. And it was like, oh, here, yeah. here we go. Like you've got, you need to have the certain key to open the lock to then, you know, get into that, um, I guess that PhD life. And I, I'm, I'm quite similar to you, you know, it's, it's, um, I'm like, Hey, it's a job. It's three years. It's, it's, it's funded. Like, um, I'm interested in the topic. Let's give it a go. Um, and you know not not getting a job in terms of a dietitian straight away and kind of not really um, finding the passion. It's like, all right, well, how can I provide impact in a different way? And that was like research, PhD. I've, I've given it a go in honours. Um, I think I can do it. Let's give it a shot. So, no, I really relate to what you said there. It's really, I really enjoyed uh, listening to that answer. That was good. Um, and, and like you said, it does, it will come in handy. You know, you still need to have certain credentials to do certain jobs. Um, it's also doing the doing it like the process the journey of it is like i would imagine and i mean it now you know it it is it's enjoyable it's fun like yes it's hard and stressful it's a lot of screen time but if you're passionate about the area and learning or um it's it's a a good option yeah like you said you know the honors is like first step phd is a second step it's like a good really good practice to know if you want to be an academic for 30 40 years you know Mm. so yeah um, and you can get some different roles in teaching and tutoring and things. So um. yeah, you can you can definitely do that kind of stuff too. And it's good as a, a as an allied health professional. It probably the the useful thing that you have and others like you is that you've got that professional whatever clinical background that you can potentially go back on and go and have a clinical practice that is being a dietitian as well as a research practice that is understanding whatever it might be, you know, the biochemistry of food, the pharmacology of food, the pharmacodynamics of food, or, you know, how people respond to diets or how people respond to being put on diets, whatever they might be. So, yeah, all that kind of stuff is, um, I think, useful. And, and I was involved in Victoria. We did this thing a couple of years ago with the Victorian government which is called the Allied Health Careers Pathway Blueprint, which kind of helped understand the different things that people with allied health training um, could could go and do to further their career, to move sideways within their career, etc. So if, if people are interested in that kind of stuff, go and check that out. If you just Google Allied Health Careers Pathway Blueprint, it should come up quite high in the list. And then you've also, you know, like you said there, safe. X amount of time, the person or even myself, you've developed a practice and you've developed research skills. Like all of a sudden, you've doubled, you know, your income stream by having two different, you know, you've got patients and you've also got a research lab or grant or whatever. So yeah. it's um, not, obviously not everything's about 
the world's not about money, but it seems to be that way sometimes. So, um, but like like we've, like this stuff we've discussed before, and I think I think this is a really important point. Is I think a huge problem I believe like with research is like the translation and impact. Like if you look at the wide amount of papers being published, like there's just there's just so much information. But how many of those are, you know, changing the world or having impact? Yes, they might have impact in their field, but what's, like, the greater good? Um, like, how, how do you think we can actually get better buy-in? I know we mentioned this before about, you know, the general public to be interested and engaged with research outcomes. Like, is there... It's, I think it's yeah. a big question. Um, just some numbers that popped into my head as you were talking about publication. So there's about 3 million journal articles published per year. Um, most of them don't get cited ever. <laughs> yep, the majority of articles get less than one citation Jeez. in their lifetime. Yeah, oh. so most even even if you say that res, that researchers are creating research for other researchers, which is would be perfectly fine. The majority of research might be read by someone else, but it isn't being cited by someone else, which means it's arguably not not useful because it didn't then get you know put into something that became itself an article um and how do, so in terms of impact how do i think we can whatever if the, if that's a problem how do we fix it i think some of it comes down to talking to your end user and understanding what it is or how they view the problem um and it doesn't it doesn't need to be um necessarily or everything has to be applied research. I, I'm happy with the idea that we can do research for research sake, but nonetheless understanding how um, the end user might use the data or how the end user might feel will just in, allow you to provide or understand better ways that you could conduct your research. As an example, um, there's a um, CRC for mental health where their students were supported to go and do in what they called industry placements and the students themselves from what i understand weren't they were all um i think neuro students you know doing neuropsychology not neuropsychology neuroscience and they were all supported to go and do data analytics uh, i think it was at a nursing home or an aged care facility and so there wasn't really a great a massive connection between the research that they did as a student and the support that they provided from the aged care facility. But what happened as a result, but like they were doing, you know, the, as neuroscientists, they were scanning brains or scanning people's brains um, that had Alzheimer's disease. And so they, by going to the aged care facility, by going to the nursing home, they developed a much better understanding of the lived experience of um, Alzheimer's disease and so as a result like I said it didn't really change their research but it changed their understanding of the population that they were helping um, and allowed them to make connections when they were then presenting about you know how this could help other people or how that would be useful so I think in some respects that's the kind of thing that I think we should be looking at doing so if you know if you're a basic biomedical researcher who you know spends a lot of their time working on individual cells or cell lines, etc. You know, even if you're talking to the people whose notionally whose diseases are involved in the pathway that you're interested in, might be a useful way of being better connected to science and society. At the very least, it'll allow you to improve the way you speak in a non-technical way, um, improve your non-technical communication of 
of science and research. And I, so I think that's one thing. And then the other thing is to start from that point. So, you know, go back out to industry or to society and say, what are the problems that you think need fixing in this space that we're talking about? You know, and if you're a dietitian, you know, should you fiddle around with macro and micronutrients and try to make a pill that is a perfect dietary supplement? Or should you talk to individuals about what it is that they want from their diet or they want in terms of nutrition, etc.? Uh, and I think that those would be better places to start. And I've seen that done relatively well. There's an um, industrial transform training transformation center based in Melbourne that's focused on the automotive industry. And all the PhD students, when they start, they all started at the same time. All the PhD students were told, here are all of our industry partners. I want you to go out and interview all of them and ask them what their problems are. And then we'll have a list of problem sets and then we'll work out a project that can address either one of those problems or if they somehow aggregate the problems, then here's a project that will help address all of those problems. And as a result, the industry was far more interested in that activity because the students had started with industry in mind rather than going, I think the problem with the industry has is ABC or here's my solution to a problem that doesn't exist. The industry's never said, oh, we've got this problem, but now I've got a solution to it. Yeah, that's a really good answer, Richard, about, I was going to say on top of you there, you, you put it perfectly with number two there, like ask the people who are actually dealing with the problem. Don't just walk in with your, you know, yeah, I've got my honours, I'm ready to change the world. You've got to figure out who you're trying to change the world for. Um because you could be changing it for no reason or changing it um, for the wrong reasons as well. You know, whatever yeah. you do could have worse impacts, you know. So mm. um, so that's really good. I love that um, explanation you gave. That was an awesome um, anecdote. That was really good. Yeah. <laughs> I, I think a simple thing, if you can't do any of that, is to be on social, be active on social media. And even if all the people that follow you are all hardcore scientists, like you might be, that's okay. You'll get practice at public speaking, and probably eventually, if you got if you do have a big following, you'll end up with people who are non-experts who will um, seek out your advice, and you know basically you'll be forced into communicating in a clear way to non-experts. And that's the that's I guess the second part of that question of like you know how do people how do we get to the people who need to know it type of thing you know like you could be in a lab in Melbourne working with cells but it's like the people who are going to benefit from this research you know in the middle of WA in the desert or something you know like how do you how do you get it from A to B so no, that was that was really good I like yeah, that so de definitely feel social media is the key to the second part of that to mm -hmm. getting it out there so I've helped people improve their social media strategy and off the back of that get industry partnerships so you know quarter of a million dollars funding direct through LinkedIn posts like there's not paid advertising not paid posts, not promoted posts, just saying to someone, you need to be more active on LinkedIn and do it in a way that is accessible. So one of the things that we struggle with, you know, going back to the 3 million papers, so many of those are behind paywalls. So even though you might, you most tweets that I see from academics about their research is, here is a paper that I just published. So excited, right? And that's it. So I have no, other than knowing 
who tweeted it. I don't know anything else about the paper. There's just, you know, a, a bitly link probably. That's if so you can't even kind of get the name of the paper or the name of the journal in there because it's all shortened. So my advice is, you know, in that tweet or in that LinkedIn post or in that Instagram post, put in one of the takeaways from the article, anything. It could be um, something that you learned in pulling together the introduction, a new method that you had, the, you know, obviously key findings if you want to put those in, but give me a reason to click that link rather than I'm awesome, I published, click my link. Yeah, um. <laughs> yeah. Because ever you know, feeds in in any type of social media or even in your email are like, look at this, look at this. But give us that why, you know, mm. and that give us those five W's and a H yeah. for how yeah. how you did it, yeah. and then we'll you know we'll, we'll buy in. <laughs> no, that's awesome. Yeah. And well, even even if, but also if you give give me that like, oh, here's the key takeaway, or here's a finding, I can then decide actually, you know what, that's not for me and move on. But I still get to make that decision. Whereas if you just tell me I'm awesome, I published. I go, oh, I don't know if I care whether you're awesome and you published. Yeah. Give, but give, if you give like, them a like, I yeah. <laughs> give them a like and scroll past. Yeah. Yeah. Well, well not even that. Yeah. Well, <laughs> maybe you like. So yeah. many, so many people aren't even doing that. It's just a straight scroll past. Oh yeah, he published. Yeah. Yeah. It's very yeah. similar to entrepreneurship. That the way you discuss that, you know, problem solution type of, um, I guess, design thinking. Like, well, let's yeah. instead of just publishing all these a million papers about all the uh, wonderful solutions let's go to the source figure it out you know trial it test it do a um uh you know audit it whatever you know to figure out what the actual problem is and how your research and then go about it that's amazing yeah if you want to get really gorilla about it or really aggressive about it you know and if you, you know, you're a dietitian i don't know who your end users are but let's say it might be you know a government department putting out new nutrition guidelines don't be afraid to write to them, going back to sort of what we started, started, talked about at the start. Look up who those people are and send them an email that says, hey, person name, I, you know, I can see that you're an awesome title. Um, I've just published this piece of research which does this about this and this is how it might help you do your job. Yeah, I've so got it. Yeah. raise their awareness of it. Because they're not like, you know, I was speaking to someone who works in the policy space and every and she's she's in academia but also in government and she, every time she tells people in academia um, policy and departmental staff don't go looking for research articles to create policy, the academics are really shocked. But when you get 3 million articles a year, you can't possibly hope to do that plus all the other work that you're supposed to read. You won't. You'll make something up and hope that it goes okay. Yeah, I've actually, it's a really good recommendation, I think, for anyone. I'm, and I'm at the moment, I'm in the middle of writing two systematic literature reviews and I'm, I'm slowly developing like an Excel spreadsheet of people I'm going to send it to. I'm like, these are people who need to know about this. And as soon yeah. as it's out there, it'll be, here's the key points. This is, our, this is where you can read it. Here's a PDF, whatever. Like, as long as they know about it, because if I put it on LinkedIn, they might not even follow me. They don't know who I am, you know. Mm. All, all those barriers but if I just go direct to the source same mm. thing as what we were talking about at the very start of the podcast about reaching out to people like yeah. you do, they're either going to bite or they're not you know it's like going fishing so um, mm. give it a go see what happens and then like like we said you could either get nothing or something you know that's only the other two there's only two ways um, mm. that's awesome that's really yeah, cool and, and it works like you said so mm. 
Mm, yeah, that, that's right. Then it's an easy way to promote your papers. So like you said, find out who the end user might be of the paper that is outside research. But even inside, all the people that you referenced, if you write to them and say, hey, Nathan, I ref, you know, I referenced your pa- your awesome dietetics paper or, hey, Nikki, I referenced your awesome nursing paper or, hey, Joe, I referenced your awesome dentistry paper, they'll go, oh, wow, what did, what did they write about? Oh, I'm going to click that and see, oh, yeah, and I'm actually interested. And you, you might get, you know, stuff off that as well. So don't be afraid to send your papers out to all the people that you referenced when you wrote and got your paper submitted. And that they'll be stoked as well because it's got something to, you know, people are very interested in themselves. They're like, oh, cool. Yeah, yeah. You know, where am I in this? Where, where's, where's my reference? Like, how good? Yeah. <laughs> Just don't reference them wrong. <laughs> well, I, I don't think that that's, I think that would be highly unlikely. But yeah, they might come back and go, oh, you interpreted that all wrong. And who cares, right? Yeah. And that's going to blow up somewhere. Who yeah. knows where? Yeah. You know? <laughs> And then you get more traction. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, if, uh, that's why the people create problems online because they get, you know, they get the um, um, not attention. What what do you get? Like the um interaction. The interaction goes yeah. way up because that's what they write all those articles about, you know, BuzzFeed and stuff. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Now yourself, in terms of DRH, you offer like a lot of services and resources as well as you know you got some. It appears, or I would say you do, you've got some quite high-ranked clients, you know, such as government, universities, and you've, you've done some mm-hmm. really cool stuff with developing some institutes and stuff. Um, first of all, like, what do you do, you know, with early career students? I guess that's what you said you're more focused on the career pathway and uh, establishing people outside of academia. So, you know, I guess in terms of your customer base, what, what are people mo- most contacting you for? Because you offer such a wide amount of things. Yeah, so because of the way that I position myself, the most common thing now is career coaching and career advice. So, you know, the way that I pitch myself is I, I was a researcher, I exchanged my lab coat for a suit coat, and now I help researchers answer the question, what next? And what next is anything? What next is do I write a research grant? What next is which research grant? What next is do I set up an institute? What next is, do I get onto social media? What next is, how do I get industry partners? You know, or which industry partners? Um, so, and so most of my client base now are in that space of um, career coaching and coaching along those lines. I've got programs that are focused on thesis writing. Um, and so that's, I guess, career-based in terms of finishing off your thesis. I've got programs that are focused on journal article writing. And that's, you know, about um, progressing your... Um, progressing your stuff on, you know, your research life. I've got programs that are aimed at one-to-one coaching, trying to work out what, you know, literally work out what to do next. And, you know, whether that's applying for a job or writing for a grant or, you know, saying goodbye to your current boss and hello to a new one. Um, yeah, so that's basically what I do now. More that coaching stuff. Yeah, life coach, some people call it, career coach. Yeah. And you, you enjoy that part of the business? Like, I guess it's kind of evolved to that stage now. Yeah, I enjoy that a lot. It's um, yeah, it's quite rewarding. And the inf- like before, when I was doing a lot more grant writing, that's exciting. And when grants get funded, and you know, when you write a grant that that gets someone a few million dollars, that's really exciting. And when you do projects that are you know impacting um, all health professionals in the state, that's really exciting. But helping people one to one 
there's a closed loop to that that isn't for any of those other things. So yeah, the grant gets funded, which is cool, but you don't really get to see how that gets implemented, you know, because you're not really around for the five years that the grant runs for, um, you know, and like I said, helping impacting clinical training, which is what I did early on with um, Donna. You don't really get to see how that plays out because, you know, you, you're no longer involved in the implementation of it. You hope it's running well and then you hear that it's not and you get annoyed. Whereas we, you know, these individual mentoring clients, like today I had a phone call with someone, um, which was a follow-up, you know, we had a chat a few a month ago and I just said, oh, what have you done since then? And she's like, she didn't change much on her LinkedIn. She changed a couple of keywords. That was basically all she had time to do. And she said she had an uptick in engagement just from changing some keywords on her profile. So she changed how she described herself and she changed a couple of words in her summary and that increased engagement with, you know, new connections on LinkedIn. And so she was excited that in 15 minutes we'd cover that. She made the changes and now she had more connections. And that's, you know, I can get to see that as a closed loop if that makes sense. I get the feedback, oh yeah, your advice was worth taking action on, so I did it. And not only was it worth acting on, but it actually resulted in an outcome that was beneficial to the, to the client, to the end user. And that, that goes exactly back to what we were saying before about focusing on what that end, end user you know wants or, or needs at the time and being able to pr- provide that and, and as yeah. well and not in, not in the not in the span of a three five year PhD research or um, funded program but in the 15 minute phone call over a month you know to then provide actual impact for that person so that's that's, yeah. that's awesome and are you able to I guess you know, self-promotion, are you able to name any grants or institutes that you've developed, you know, or got, you know, how much money have you successfully, you know, pulled from the government or, you know? Uh, I I don't want to take credit for a lot of things. A lot of the stuff that I write is collaborative ideas that then result in things getting funded. Um, You know, there's institutes at Melbourne, at Monash that have all been established because of work that I've done and and yeah so i wouldn't be comfortable to name drop because i couldn't take the credit for the success of these things but i've been involved in some some really big stuff um stuff that people would walk in and out of every day which is really cool like that that like it's really cool to see that you know the building got built or the institute got established um yeah that's that's been cool yeah and another like just quick one on top of that what has been like your biggest you know impact moment you'd be like yep I, I can sit back now. I've done my job really well here. Like a bit, the big tick when you've like, you know, you, you can you can actually like I'm I don't drink a lot of alcohol, but you can be like, you know what, I deserve a beer. That was really like, <laughs> well, well worth it. I I believe in celebrating small wins. So it could be anything. Like you know, um, I went on a podcast with with whiteboard lessons, Craig Harper, and getting on that that was exciting. I was like, yeah, that's a that's a massive that's a big win, but. You know, to get on a podcast um, might not be other people's idea of a big win. And certainly the impact of that, who knows? Like, I don't know whether people change what they did as a result. Um, mm. I got calls and follow-ups and Craig said he got good feedback. But, yeah, um, so celebrating small stuff. And some days when progress feels slow, you've got to try and focus on, on small stuff. Today's been... a frustrating day for lots of reasons so i had to sit back and go you know what if i get through a couple of things get this podcast done it'll be a good day i, I deserve to relax at the end of that so that's okay but in terms of um big stuff 
Um, I love doing stuff where small changes have big impacts. So that LinkedIn one was a really good example. Then I've helped, like I said, um, one guy, we, we did a one-day LinkedIn session with a team. He was part of the team. Within three months, he got a quarter of a million dollars in research funding, like I said, purely off the back of his LinkedIn stuff. Um, I was working with another guy, uh, doing a, writing a grant. They had a philanthropic opportunity come through while we were still working on writing his grant. And they said, oh, do you mind switching your focus? In two days, we wrote a three-page proposal that got, I think it was $5 million. Yeah, wow. and that, like, that's cool. Yeah. Like, that's cool. Um, and that was, at the time, the biggest philanthropic funding that they had received. It was one of the biggest in the country at the time as well. So that, that's, you know, that's awesome stuff. When you hear that, you're like, yeah, like, that's big. Yeah. Um, that's amazing. And like, yeah. The Allied Health Careers Pathway Blueprint, that's cool. That's, you know being rolled out across Victoria. Um, and that was really cool to be involved in that kind of stuff. Early on, I worked on um, the Best Practice Clinical Learning Environment Project, which has been, and that's still going. Donna's working a lot on that, and she was the lead on that. And that's been going good. So there are diff different things have had different impacts, yeah. Yeah, amazing, yeah. Philanthropic funding doesn't come around the corner that too often, so that's amazing. No. Two-day turnaround, that's fantastic. Yeah. Um, in terms, in terms of you, I just love hearing that type of stuff, like success, outcomes, and things as well. Because, um, and it's not obviously it's about the it's about the process of like I said before about writing it and being involved and having the conversation with the people, making connections and networks and stuff is also part of it. So, on top of that, like I, I believe having like accountability, especially for your clients and yourself, you know, as part being a coach, um, you see lots of nutrition and exercise coaches, and it's the hardest thing is that I would I would imagine is getting the client or the custom to be accountable to their actions and their choices. And I heard Hugh Jackman say this, he's on Tim Ferriss' show, and he said, you know, even Roger Federer has a coach, right? He's the best tennis player ever, ever lived. Mm. He's top of the world. But he, yeah, he's, and he's, however old he is, 40 or something, but he still has a coach, you know? It's, and people give it quite like the, oh, you're a coach or this type of um, stigma, but it's actually really important. Like, you can even give it the word mentor, whatever you want to label on it. It's not about the word, it's about the relationship that you have with that yeah. person, what do you see as like the barriers of entry to people reaching out to getting a coach or having that partnership with their mentor? Um, and can on top of that, can you explain the benefits of the relationship that you've? Mm. Yeah, I think the so talking about myself, like I've I would have said no to coaching when I was in my thirties. I would have said no to coaching when I was in my twenties. Um, particularly in a, in a business sense. And so I don't, uh, if I reflect on me at that point, I would have thought, well, what, what could a coach do that I couldn't do? And like you kind of said, or, and like I say to my clients, I can't do the work for you. I can support you. I can work out why you, I can help you work out why you don't want to do something, why it might be hard to do something, why there might be mental blocks there or physical blocks or whatever it might be, but I can't actually do any of the work for you. Um, so I think, um, one of the reasons why I would have said no, and I think one of the reasons why academics perhaps say no or, and PhD students is that for most things, we're capable of picking up and doing anything. Like we're not, we're smart people, we're quick learners. And as a result, we think we can do anything. And in many cases we probably can, right? It's not difficult 
for most of us to go and pick up a new skill or to follow a set of instructions and do something because that's what we're trained to do. You know, we follow research methods all of the time. But in but if you think about, you know, go back to the Roger Federer example, he could do exactly the same thing. He doesn't need the coach, but it shortcuts for him and I think for other people, it shortcuts your pathway to um, improvement or to success. So, you know, if Roger Federer can hit 50 tennis balls and then go on the video of hitting 50 tennis balls and go, yeah, for the most of it, I did okay, but I wasn't swinging there or my foot wasn't getting into the right position. So then he has to go back out and practice hitting another 50, now focusing on where his foot was or where his hand was. But if he has a coach that's right there, the coach can say, you're not thinking right or you're not moving right or whatever it might be. And and the correction can come far more immediately. And I think that's what the benefit of the coach is. You know, you get to, the coach has the benefit of having made or seen it having made all of the mistakes that there are to make and can help to avoid them and help you move through them. Or when you hit a brick wall or when you reach a speed bump, they can help you navigate the wall or the speed bump. Yeah, and then... So I think that's the benefit. That's fantastic. And I really... That's, I just... As you speak, I could just picture someone on the tennis court then but even and someone on the sidelines screaming and yelling so that's a perfect example because then you know you don't necessarily have to go out and do the 50 on the same day you do the next week because at the exact time that the the foot was changing whatever the coach was there bang hey move this and that's like you know more of a behavior thing and then all of a sudden by ball 49 the coach is silent because he knows that what's going on is good and Mm. you don't have to then repeat that 50 balls that day or whatever so now, that was really yeah. that was really good. I like that. Yeah, it is. It is hard. I think a lot of people see that and go, "I can do that," or I, "I'm, you know, I'm capable." And they give it a go and they realize how hard things are sometimes as well. And they go, "All right, maybe, I, maybe I shouldn't. I should probably get some support," you know. And that's what the whole PhD people who are listening and contemplating one. That's that is like the whole PhD journey. Is is a big, you know, you you don't have three to four supervisors for nothing. They're there to support mm. you. And so you don't end up, um, you know, not not passing. I guess is is the ultimate goal. Yeah. So yeah. yeah, they they want you to succeed. They, I mean, like I said, I think we were talking about this before that mm. you know, your supervisor chooses you as much as you choose them. So there's a, there's definitely a case of they want to see you succeed, um, and and so you know they they're keen on helping you as best they can. And and you know lots of people have trouble with their supervisor, and I think there's various reasons for that i think one of it comes down to not the two people not really understanding each other well you know supervisors are like basically i'm training a a mini me and students are like no no i want to be myself and neither of them you know take into account that the other person might have a different kind of idea about what has to happen you know supervisors think students should be all about super you know being good being good supervisees and students want their supervisors to, you know, spoon feed them stuff rather than help them out or whatever. So yeah, there's a, there's a bit of that as well. Amazing. That's all about that communication and the, you know, I guess establishing the relationship that you want. And it, obviously, it comes over time. You're not going to know exactly what you want straight away. It's good to have goals and try and them, mm. and then re- readjust and go from there. Um, what what has been your biggest lesson, I guess, up until now at this point in time in terms of, I guess, not necessarily research, but what the, I guess let's say in terms of DRH and the brand that you're putting out now what um, what has been your biggest lesson 
Um, I've so when I started out, my brand was different. It, it was Raven Consulting Group, and I repositioned that a couple of years ago. Life changes, and so I repositioned myself. But in the process of setting up my, I call it a practice now. The process of setting up my my business then, but practice now was I thought that I wanted to be a boutique consultancy that probably supported or had you know ten to twenty employees. And I quickly learned that what I liked doing was the work and what I hated doing was managing other people. And therefore, you can't have a business if you want to manage other people, but you can you can have a practice. And so a practice and the difference between the two from my perspective, and this is not my idea, this is comes from a group that I've done some work with or who I've um, been a student of, Thought, business, Thought Leaders Business School. The difference between a business and a practice is a practice essentially centers around one individual. So if you think about a law practice or a health practice, it's the lawyer or the health practitioner who's the center. And then there's only support staff. So there's only, um, you know, a, a, a desk front office person or whatever, or a web developer or an admin person. And everything else is down to the practitioner to get right. So the practitioner is responsible for working with the clients. And so that's now how I, how I run my, um, my practice. And so that's probably going to be, I guess, not necessarily learning in the sense of, oh, I made this mistake and now I've got to undo it. The more I've learned as I've gone along that I need to scale in a way that gets me out to more people rather than seeks to clone a bunch of other people to be like me so that we can get access to more clients. Yeah. yeah, that's amazing. That's a really good outlook in terms of, you know, A versus B, business versus practice, because like like you said there, you can't spend all your time following up with the same clients or sending out social media. Like, it's kind of the same thing where people look at, you know, working in the business and working on the business. Like, it's it's not called, you know, DRH for nothing. It's Richard mm. It's Richard Heisman's is the guy, you know. Yeah, you don't want to call up and be talking to a bot or Google or, yeah, or yeah. Nathan Cook. You want to be talking to Richard, you know. So, yeah, yeah. Um, no, nah, that's really... And that helps me as well. I'm looking at doing some, you know, I guess nutrition coaching or consulting next year just to bring in a bit of side income if I move to Melbourne. And it's like, well, how am I going to... The best way, you know, do you want to be affiliated with Nathan Cook and the Cook's community or do you want to be talking to, you know, Joe Bloat? up in Queensland. So, no, that's fantastic. <laughs> and so we're going to go through a bit more, I guess, DRH now in terms of, and I see you've kind of intertwined the raven there with the, with the picture, which is really cool, <laughs> like a transition. So from raven... Yeah, yeah. Well, I like that. I like the bird and stuff. So I wanted to keep that as part of it. And lots of people, there was really, there is still good brand recognition for that part of that image. So that's why I kept it. Yeah. Yeah, I like it. It's cool. Um... What do you what do you talk about on your podcast? I'm so you run a podcast, so yeah, the podcast is so for those that follow podcasts or whatever, or maybe that don't. I I was influenced a lot by Gary Vaynerchuk, Gary V. Have you heard of him? Yeah, yep, yep. Yeah. The LinkedIn man. Yeah. Oh, LinkedIn. Well, there you go. I see. I only saw him on Instagram, and then the people who follow him originally found him on Twitter. Anyway, he's really pro take the and this other lady that I also work closely with Jane Anderson um, they're really pro take one piece of content and leverage it as many times as you can so like you said you showed up to the write your um, using MS word to write your thesis workshop so I run those via zoom and zoom has an automatic record function and so my assistant James 
he takes the audio, puts it into the podcast and takes the video and makes it a YouTube clip. And that's it. So there's not a lot of post-production. There's no, like, we don't even do a voiceover at the start and the end. There's no music. It's nothing. It just goes straight into it. And what I, so that's taken direct from Gary V in terms of take the stuff and, you know, put it everywhere. But also it's kind of this, what I want to be in general is really accessible and get straight to the point. So I really, I was impressed that you said that the word thing was really quick and straight to the point and we got in and out. And so I didn't go over time. The, the ideas basically came from the start of the talk to the end of the talk. You know, there wasn't today we're going to talk about and I hope you enjoy and da, da, da. I just went boom, here's MS word tips. Um, and that's what I, I hate when you go to YouTube and you go, you know, how to whatever it might be. I don't know how to hammer a nail. They'll spend five minutes talking about a hammer, five minutes talking about the nail, and then they'll put it into the wood. They'll go, now this is a piece of wood, that, and they'll spend ages. And so the last three, you know, you can't, yeah, you, exactly, you cannot find what you're after, right? Even Google's now has put in, if you if you want to like how to bake a cake, it will be like, this, yes. is the, this is the clip from this 10 minute YouTube video that you actually need to know. Like, yeah. Here's the 30 <laughs> seconds that shows you how to bake a cake. Exactly. Yeah. And food bloggers are the worst as well. If you go on, like I'm into cooking, I, you know, and you know, like every white male in my area got into making sourdough during lockdown. The number of food blogs that start with an irrelevant story before they get to how to freaking make sourdough. Just start with it, mate. Yeah. If I want to read your story at the end, put it at the end. Yeah. Anyway. That's, so that's what I really wanted to do. So that so my my podcast at the moment is really underproduced and deliberately so. It's I don't want to spend ages trying to make it pretty. I don't want my assistant James working out how to make an awesome podcast. If we decide that we get enough people and we want to build that up, then I'll probably get another person in to edit it up and make it, you know, pretty. But for the moment, yeah, just get it out there. Lean and agile is how I want to be. Yeah, fantastic. I love I love hearing that because it's so frustrating, like you said, to get into something and be like, oh, hey guys, how's it going today? This is what, like any Zoom meeting that I go to, I'm clocked out for the first 10 minutes because it's all introductions this is who's going to talk today this is what we're going to talk about this is all in the email this is why yeah. i'm here this has all been already told to me let's just get into it right bang mm. you know 101 it's one minute past one let's start content yeah. content straight away you know um it's, we're not you know here to tell a story here to get the facts like so <laughs> that's awesome yeah. and then though i guess on top of that uh how do you find then you know because i guess i would imagine that some people might say institutions might pay you for your service of you know presenting a microsoft word um presentation but then it's on for free, it's online for free so what what happens there is that is is that like putting a barrier up for yourself or not you don't um, find that look no more people find me because they've seen that and you know as much as there's heaps in that 45 minutes the reality is people if you didn't do anything during that 45 minutes you might watch it and go back and do it but have someone watch over your shoulder and go no 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 here's where you're making the mistake on that or here's what you need to do so they're they're keen for me to help out because they know that the support is more direct than what you can get in a 45 minute web tutorial and to be honest like you you know you can google and train yourself anything it goes back to that coaching thing right that we talked about before you can go and do you know build your or start to type in microsoft and build your thesis and then 
try and do things, not be able to do it and look up Google and try and figure out the answer. Or you can say to someone, what are some tips that I need to know? And, you know, tell me, you know, 10 things that I should be doing with my Word um, document as I write my thesis. And, and people are willing to pay for the time saving. So, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I definitely agree with that. Yeah, people don't have all the time in the world to learn to bake. Just go to the cheesecake shop, buy it, get out of there. Like, yeah, that's exactly right. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. Um, and so you've really, I've, I mentioned it before, but you've really built like a really beautiful brand for yourself. You know, you've got a great website. You've got, you know, you've got your own image. You've got the, the raven and the letters and things. Um, and like, as, as well as your website, I don't know if I've mentioned that, but it's great. So, so tell us about like, you've also got a book as well. So um, tell us about your book. Yeah, so I wrote a book uh, as a bit of a um, challenge to myself. So all my publishing up until that point was academic publishing and highly referenced and highly researched. And it's not like the book is not referenced and not researched, but it is written differently, but still for the same audience. So it's written for academics um, to help them get industry partners. So I just run through some of the issues that they might face as a researcher, as an academic, and then how you can kind of flip some of those issues to your advantage when it comes to looking for industry partners and then some of the places to go and the kinds of things that you might do in those places to get partners. Um, it was a good, a good challenge. Um, I think I mentioned before Thought Leaders Business School, they were massive support in or massive encouragement early on and then support once I started um, to, to write it. Um, I'm keen to write more books, but I just, um, at this point have not had the inkling, but I, I want to write a few more. Um, I'll probably write, there's like a, that's called the book's called connect the docs. Um, and I was going to make a couple more, one called Dr. Doc and one called join the docs. So, um, join the docs would be in, a book for industry to connect with academia and Dr. Doc would be about collaborating with other academics. Um, so I, I just need to, in my own mind, work out what the differences are between all of those books and then, then start writing. Amazing. Yeah. I, I like good titles as well. And it's, <laughs> it's the same we said. It's not about, um, hi everyone, I'm Dr. Richard Heisman. This is how you connect with other collaborators. It's just Doc to doc let's get into yeah. it like no welcoming that's that's amazing i like that um can you tell us about how it's really and i think people are really getting now that online is such a big thing mm-hmm. um people really need to understand how important it is to build your own brand like if i can't you know google i can google the cooks community i've got a podcast at facebook and instagram all that stuff now i've got like my phd twitter and a linkedin Explain to me how, like, and I guess we can even talk about how important it is to build that personal brand in terms of professionalism um, for people to find you as well. Yeah. For, well, for me, it's essential. You couldn't survive without it as a, as a um, practice manager, practice owner, solopreneur, whatever you want to call it um, now. So, and I, think, I don't think there's anyone out there trying to go, on the, go it alone that doesn't have a web presence um, as part of it. But I think for for people that aren't solopreneurs, for people that aren't you know having their own practice or small business, like it, so let's say academics, I think it's it's not essential, but I think it's massively beneficial, and it it's, it comes down to how much you're willing to put in, like anything. 
But if you're willing to put in some time to develop your LinkedIn, it just it's just one more place that people can find you. And if they're Googling their problem or if they're Googling how to fix or if they're Googling something that might relate to a series of terms that you've got on LinkedIn that might also be on your university page, it just increases the chances that they'll come and find you. And so that personal branding thing I think is really important. Obviously, if you want to go hardcore, you can have a logo and color scheme and all the rest of it. But there are other things that you can do as well that don't relate to all of that. So um, like Nathan said, most of the time you'll see me wearing a suit and tie with a pocket square. and you'll see the backdrop of you know DRH. Um, you'll see that on my website. You'll see it on my business cards. It's so that look and feel is always the same for me. It's going to be DRH and me in a suit and tie with a pocket square. Um, I don't think I've done anything professionally where that's not the look that I've gone for. So you know, as a researcher, I think you know appearance matters, and you don't have to wear a suit and tie and a pocket square, but you know whatever Steve Jobs was the um, jeans and black shirt um, what what's um, who else is out there someone had the um, oh, who's now forgotten what the Facebook Zuckerberg's oh, Facebook yeah. look like, like, like the grey shirt grey yeah. shirt and jeans yeah. I guess as well I can't really remember yeah but similar yeah, yeah. um you know, that idea of what's, you know, you can have a look, which is part of personal branding. Um, you can have a particular style. There's a guy that I know that when he does presentations, he always sings a song. Um, yeah, but I mean, this this is the thing that I think is worth doing, but academics are so scared of being out of the box. But imagine if you sung a song at every single academic presentation that you gave, when I'm looking three minutes, like it might just be a bit of a poem. Or something like that but it would be a way that oh, every time Nathan presents he does this poem about dietetics it's a different one each time it's so funny you should go to his talk just to hear that yeah and then you've got excellent you know the whole conference in front of you compared to that the really important molecular biology nutrition <laughs> diabetics <laughs> saving <laughs> cure you know? exactly right exactly <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Entertain me first, educate me second. And so these are all the things that you can do if you know for your personal brand. Yeah. Amazing. And like you know, I was talking to someone last week about just having business cards. Oh really? You know? I'm like, yeah, if you don't have one you can't hand it out and they're so cheap, so cheap. If your university won't do them for you, like you can for fifty bucks you can get two hundred business cards done, printed, delivered to your door. Yeah, and it's, that's it. Then you're done. Just make, make, don't make a spelling mistake. You'll get out your, your pen and markers and your white. <laughs> that's white on your white out. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Now, I, I, I'm, this is. I'm going to finish up here in a minute, Richard. But I really admire your dress sense with the, you know the pocket square and the suit. And I actually yeah. heard I, I can't I don't know his name, but he's the head of you might know him. He's the head of school of medical sciences at Monash. Um, and I was in a, I was in a meeting with him, and he came in and he said, um, you know, when I got this job, um, what he said was. Um, my family came to me and said, you know, you got to look the part, mate. Like, and when people see him, what they said to him is like, you know, if they see me and I'm in my Steve Jobs with the black shirt and, you know, blue jeans, they're going to think the whole thing's gone to shit. Whereas if I turn up every day in a suit, and he was even on Zoom, you know, at his house in a suit, people know that everything's all right. And so when I saw you in, in, the, um, in the Microsoft Word um you know, how to write your thesis, I was like, this guy knows what's going on. And so it was not another reason, you know, and that's, you know, helped 
you know, um, build our networks now, and then also me getting in contact with you because it's now boosted your your image as well as your background and helped me get in contact with you. You know, and that's, so that's yeah. a perfect example of what for people to hear out there. Um, you know how it does exactly work into to get to points like this. So yeah, now nah, r- really cool outfits, and I yeah, I <laughs> encourage you to look up Richard after this podcast or while you're listening and check out some really cool pocket squares and color yeah. combos and stuff. It's really good. <laughs> Yeah, it's always color coordinated, exactly. Yeah, uh, and, and what's up in your world out, you know, outside of, um, you know, Doctor Richard Heisman's or mm-hmm. outside of Monash or um, what, what's yeah. going on this this time in your life? Uh, well, obviously, we're coming up to Christmas and um, birthdays and all of that kind of stuff. So there's plenty on with that. I've got um, a bit outside of all of this. I play the drums. I haven't played the drums for ages, but I do play the drums. So. Um, at times I've toyed with the idea of bringing that into the work that I do, but I haven't, um, fully worked out how to do that just yet, but I might do that. Uh, we, my kids wanted a turtle, so they saved up and bought a whole turtle setup. Yeah. So we've got a, a three foot by one foot fish tank in the lounge room with a turtle inside it. And that's so cool. You, you feed turtles live food, so it's cool to see the circle of life and they're learning about the circle of life keeping the turtle. Like We've also got um, dogs and a rabbit as well, but they don't eat live food like the turtle does, so that's cool. Um, like I said, a bit of a sourdough baker now that we're in lockdown. Um, so I've baked a fair share of my fair share of bread. Um, the kids love and I like them too, sourdough pancakes. They're really nice, really fluffy, really tasty. Um, more of a savory experience to a pancake than a sweet one. Yeah. So that that's some of the things that I'm into. And like I said, massively into soccer. So most day, most weeks I'll play two or three games of soccer. Yeah. Amazing. I love that people, you know, it's like I said earlier in before we jumped on, you know, people have, you know, they're still human. They have this out this thing behind their brand and so that that's you know outside of um working so that's that's awesome that you know you get out mm. activity you hang out with your kids and you know buy a couple of new pets here and there so uh, <laughs> what, what's the turtle's name the turtle's called pebbles pebbles yeah nice you got some pebbles in the uh in the cage i'm imagining as well or a fish tank yeah, it lives in a tank but yeah 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 yeah, yeah. yeah. um yeah i had a t- i had my stepmom had a turtle once gilbert and we we didn't have him a fresh food. We had these little cubes. They, they look like little um, frozen barocas, and you drop them in, and he'd eat two of those a day. But uh, so you're giving him words or uh, worms or fish or yeah, yeah. So you, he lives with fish, and every time when he's hungry, he just knocks a couple of them off. Oh wow! <laughs> That's amazing. Um, yeah, we're growing. So my girlfriend has got into growing silkworms and they're supposed to eat silkworms so we're trying to rear silkworms from eggs through to be- going back to becoming a silk uh rap- you know doing the cocoon thing etc so we'll see how that goes but they eat silkworms um mealworms so maggots essentially they're live when you feed them um and they eat earthworms as well so he's eaten a couple of live earthworms and that that was a bit horrendous oh. yeah, yeah. i don't know that the podcast listeners want to hear how that went so could yeah. clean the water out it'll be uh, a brown and red water jeez you, yeah, you get the right. whole you get the whole bloody uh, upcycling type of you know put your food scraps in 
uh, compost, get grow the worms, feed the worms to the turtle. It's like, oh, you'll, yeah. you'll become a farm soon. That's amazing. Yeah. That's awesome. <laughs> um, yeah, I used to play the drums. Uh, I, I, I was a bit younger. I was must have been 12 or 13, and I was just too active. I was out doing surf life saving in AFL and stuff, and I just never sat down. Um, after school oh, yeah. playing with them or, or I was playing Xbox so I, 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 kind of, I kind of didn't stick with it but it's a really fun instrument I love it you know I'm always yeah. tapping and fiddling and things so and I, yeah. that's really I think it's cool that you try intertwine it you know because you want to try be as authentic and personal and, and professional as you are so you know hey I'm Richard I, I can teach you how to be a fantastic academic outside of academia but also you know check out my drums and the books that I like and and that's, that's another thing I had there is I see you see you've read Atomic Habits. You know what? What do you think about that? I haven't. It's on my oh, list to do. Um, what do you think about yeah. that? Yeah, I loved it. Couldn't I, you know, definitely read it. Um, if you haven't got a copy, I saw that James Clear um, sent out a newsletter last week, and Amazon had it for fifty percent off. So if you're listening to this in early December, twenty twenty. Jump onto Amazon, see if you can get a discounted copy. Um, yeah, and I got to hear James Clear speak. He came out in 2019, and I got to meet him, and he signed my book, and everything it was cool. Yeah, and I love I love his approach. So one of the things that I really like about his approach, he's not an academic. Um, you know, going through the U.S. system, I think he's got a master's. But if you go to uni in the U.S., a lot of people end up with some kind of postgraduate degree, but he doesn't have a PhD, he's not a doctor, he's not a researcher, he's not an academic, but he all of his pieces that he writes are so well researched. There's always an anecdote or a story or a literal piece of scientific evidence that goes into his work. And once I started reading him, that was one of the things that I wanted to bring into the blogs and stuff that I write is to make sure that I find something, some piece of evidence that I can include all the pieces that I write so amazing yeah it's going to probably hopefully it'll be under the Christmas tree if not it'll be on my Kindle in the next 10 minutes so <laughs> that's that's awesome um, and our very last question Richard uh, I, I, once again appreciate really appreciate your time today uh, Friday as well um, what's an ideal day for Richard Heisman's so the way I explain this question is to um, the very first person I had on my friend Aaron he was snowboarding in Japan in the morning we're having beers in the afternoon and then we're surfing, you know, at night time. So, uh, yeah. what's an ideal um, day? Ideal day, uh, it'd be, I do enjoy the work that I do, so I'd love to do like a coaching session in there. Uh, definitely um, would, after that would be like something fitness related, a game of soccer or something like that would be good. Then after that, go and watch the soccer with my family and then you know have a, some beers chips fish at the, at the soccer that's good fun yeah so that'd be probably that'd be a pretty full day i think that'd probably probably do me that'd be the ideal day i think for me yeah, yeah. you got you got the turtle in the, in the pocket square as well at the soccer bring him <laughs> bring him bring him along <laughs> that's awesome yeah. no fantastic well once again richard i do really appreciate your time today thanks so much for coming on and and um you know reach uh me reaching out and you responding and um i guess growing the network together so thanks again yeah no problem thanks to you thanks to the listeners i happy if any of the listeners want a copy of my book shoot me an email 
Um, and you can either get my email by Googling Richard Heisman's or you can write to the Nathan and get my email. I'm happy to send you a complimentary copy of the book or answer any questions you might have. And Thanks also, just on, on top of that, where can the listeners find you as well? You know? Yeah, so if you Google Richard Heisman, so that, that's spelled H-U-Y-S-M-A-N-S, you'll find heaps about me. So I've got a website, which is drrichardheismans.com. On Twitter is Richard Heismans. On LinkedIn is Richard Heismans. And on Instagram is Dr. Richard Heismans. Amazing. Thanks, yeah. thanks again, Richard. Thanks, Nathan. To finish off, as always, thanks for listening. I really do appreciate it as this is a passion of mine. Don't forget to leave a review. It helps other people find the show. And please share this episode on your social media or tell a friend to continue spreading the message of cooking goals. You can sign up to our weekly email by clicking the link in the description of this episode and follow our Instagram at The Cooks Community. We are also available on Facebook. Until next time, remember to breathe.